is for you. Because I love baptisms. I really do. And even as we're sitting there, I know that it's a, it's a thing that, um, you know, you've seen it before. You've done the song and dance. And if you don't know the Hamiltons well, you might miss the substance and significance of what you just witnessed. And so I want to make sure that you don't miss what you just saw. This was an echo of what happened 2,000 years ago. Actually, Emily, with you here too, 2,000 years ago when we watched Jesus from the sticks go and climb into the arms of his cousin, into his arms of his family, where he goes into the river of Jordan and he goes down into the water and he comes back up and there's a dove descending upon him and there's a voice that's speaking over him that says, with you, I am well pleased. Oh my gosh. I, every time I hear it, it makes me want to cry. Because that's why we gather on Sundays, to, to remind ourselves that that's true. To try again to trust that it's true. That in this world that is addicted to only giving praise to the performers and the producers, we have a God who speaks over our lives and says, it is with you and not by you that I'm well pleased. It is as is and not because. Jesus, you haven't done anything yet. I know. The voice still said, it is with you, I'm well pleased. Baptism is why we get together for church. It is the central truth of your life. It is the central truth of my life. It is what we are all here to remind one another of, to re-enter and re-engage with that piece of who we are. And let me just give you a quick visual because I saw baptism happen earlier this week. It didn't happen with... Um, it didn't happen in the River Jordan, but it did happen with somebody that was wearing Jordans. And you'd have to actually like talk to somebody higher in the theological totem pole to see if that counts as the same thing. But I took my son Sawyer with me to the Timberwolves game, and it was the first time he's been able to go to a chapel with me before the game. And as we were sitting in the chapel room and the players were coming in, Josh Akogi walks in and he makes a beeline straight for Sauce, and he sits down next to him. And Josh says to him what I say to the guys before every game, what I try to say to all of you before every sermon. He looks at him and he goes, give me your eyes, son. Who you are is more important than what you do. Even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. And Sawyer has been smiling all week, just wet with that baptismal water. But that's what it's all about. That is why we are doing what we do. That is why we are in pursuit of these things. We are trying to remind ourselves that in this world that's going to give you a lot of different names and tell you who you are, even though they are not qualified for a job that big, there is one who already gave you a name and it's beloved. It's child of God. It's enough. With you, God is well pleased. With you, God is well pleased. So I want to make sure we say that out of the gates because that is a sacred moment. I don't want us to rush past it. Now, what do you guys... What do you want to talk about? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Should we talk about Lent? Should we go into Lent? Let's go into Lent. I want to talk about Lent. Debbie mentioned it. We are in this series right now. We are calling it a good enough Lent based on Kate Bowler's book. What is Lent? When you read the gospel story, Jesus comes, and in particular Luke 4, but in different spots, he comes and he says that I have come to proclaim the gospel. When Paul would later go on to pontificate, as to what exactly that means, Paul would say, well, the gospel is this. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again. The totality of life summed up and displayed in the body of one. The church was so marked by these movements, these linchpin events, that 
almost immediately in the aftermath of Christ's resurrection and ascension, they started to form a calendar. They didn't have like uh, the Easter celebrations or the Christmas celebrations or Super Bowl parties at that point, but they did immediately say that Sunday, the first day of the week, that's going to be our holiest day of the week. It's going to mark and it's going to remind us of the time when the women came and they met the risen Christ. Sunday is that space where we re-engage with this. And so at the center of the calendar of all of our different movements, when we talk about Lent, we are talking about this tradition that sacramentalized our calendars, that made space, stretches of time, seasons, holy. That's what calendars do. They are sacramental in this way. I was at a birthday party last night for my brother C.T. Chris Thibodeau turned 50 years old, and we all got together in this big party, big affair, and we sang songs to Chris. We brought gifts to Chris. We told Chris how loved he is. We did all of these things for Chris, not because we loved Chris more yesterday on this particular day. The point of yesterday was the rest of the days. It was to remind us that the love that we have for Chris, we better not take that for granted. That is the point of the calendar. And so early on in our church tradition, our church parents, they got together and they said, okay, the gospel is Christ lived, Christ died, Christ is buried, Christ rose. If Easter is the heart of everything that we are about, then we better not, you know, waltz into Easter and waltz out right away. Really shouldn't be a one-day affair. There's some preparatory work that's required before we get to the pastels and the party and everything else. We need to slow our roll. And so about 400 years after the death of Christ, they decided, you know what, we're going to take 40 days, season of Lent. 40 days derived from a number of different spots throughout Scripture, but in particular when Jesus goes into the woods. 40 days to slow our pace and ask the deeper questions. 40 days to consider things that we tend to brush right past. 40 days because we recognize that in Easter, if the hope that is extended to us, if the invitation that is cast upon us is that there is a resurrection that is here for us to pick up, well, then that means that there's some deaths in us that we need to set down. There are some things that we have to name. You know, we, we are in Lent right now. We were in Lent last year as well. But we're not the same people that we were last year. I would have said collectively, I mean, you talk about Steph coming on board and all the, the, the different growth of kids and the shaping of this community, but individually, I mean, I'm looking out at this room right now, and I know individually there's been different kinds of hits that people have taken, different kinds of bruises that people have picked up, some addictions that have kind of um, hijacked lives. We have some areas where we've grown apathetic in our lives, disconnected in our lives, angry in our lives. We've experienced joy. We've experienced life, death, burial, resurrection. We've seen it all, the full spectrum. We're not who we once were. And if this was a season of darkness, we don't need to know why we are carrying the things that we are carrying. We don't need to name the things within us. But Lent, first and foremost, is about expansion, not contraction, about revealing, not concealing. Lent is about light. Even etymologically, the word Lent comes from this old Anglo-Saxon word, which was just meaning spring. 
the elongating of our days. The light is lingering longer, and so the invitation is that you should linger on your life a little bit longer. You, you should actually take a, an account. Life is so often assumed, it's so rarely assessed, but not so in Lent. In Lent, we actually take the time to look within. Lent, we, we take the time to linger on our lives a little bit longer. And I think that we would, but honestly, we're just so tired, right? I was like, Debbie, we, I, Debbie came up to me and she was being all like cheery earlier. And I said, I'm not here for that right now, Debbie. I'm exhausted. I'll tell you right now, I had a caffeine, I had a caffeine, I had a coffee that had caffeine inside of it. And so I'm feeling jittery right now. But the only reason I had that is because the rest of my body is fast asleep. Could not be more tired. Do not love daylight savings time. Do not love when we have soccer games at 7 a.m. and now it's really 6 a.m. That's not fun. That's not an exciting thing for me to be. I think that a lot of us, we're just so tired. Like we got enough things that are like deficits on energy that who really wants to do inner work and have like things revealed that we've been trying to sidestep for a while now. I don't even know why I'm tired. I couldn't even cite for you all the reasons why I'm tired. Is it because my kids are at school, are not at school because of the strike? Is it Ukraine? Is it taxes? Is it, what, what is, I don't know. But Lent is the invitation to ask, but maybe you should look into that. What are the things that you are carrying that feel particularly heavy? A lot of us, though, we don't want to go there because we're tired. And if we're not tired, like, we're just probably distracted by other things. I go to this place, gosh, I'm worried about saying this out loud because I don't want you to think I'm a very dark person. Enneagram for this, that would explain this. I tend to go to um, the cemetery before I come to church on Sundays. Hear me out. It is this beautiful space. What is it, Washburn McCree? Is that how you say it? What's the spot up the road from here? There it is, Lakewood Cemetery. I think it's the most beautiful spot in Minneapolis. But I will go there before I come to church to just be still and to just like clear my head and to both like consider my own like mortality but also like the weight of the moment we are in. It's not just another Sunday, right? This is a space we are doing something that yes, it is habitual but it's something different too. There's weight inside of this if we pay attention. And so I go there today and I'm clearing my head and I'm sitting and it's a perfect moment of silence when I turn around and I spin and there's not, not five but 10 turkeys encroached by my I don't know what turkeys can do. I don't know like what kind of threat they pose. There was no like Animal Planet episode that covered that topic. And so I turn around, these turkeys are now stalking me. My point is this, is that even sometimes when we try to be still and look within, there's always some kind of turkey that's getting after us. Always some kind of thing that's trying to like take us away from what we're trying to be. I want us to go that deeper place though to push past the fatigue, the distractions, the turkeys, and everything else, and listen to the invitation of Lent to linger on your life, and ask about all the things that you picked up over this past year that you are carrying with you as we go to the holiest week of the year. There's a story in John 5. John 5, this moment where Jesus is, um, he's going to Jerusalem for one of the festivals, and he comes across this person at the pool who is crippled. And I'll, I'll read you the story. It goes like this. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored, covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. 
Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped into that water was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. I gotta click it, don't I? Sorry. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. 38 years of lying next to the pool waiting for a healing to happen. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and had learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he looked at him. He stooped down next to him. He considered his condition. And he still had the audacity to ask, do you want to get well? To which I would say, like, Jesus, there's probably a better question you should ask. Man's been here for 38 years. My mom's view education tells me that's, what, 13,870 nights. I'm not doing it off the top of my head. I got a calculator out earlier. 13,870 mornings where he woke up and he heard that there was a healing happening down the road, but it wasn't happening in him. 13,870 nights where he would cry himself to sleep, wondering why another 24 hours went by and his body still hadn't been fixed. 13,870 nights where he could hear up the road people moving on with their lives, and yet he was still stuck and still. Jesus, how dare you ask, do you want to get well? Why would you ask, do you want to get well? And I think Jesus, if he were physically among us right now and he were to hear me asking that question, I probably wouldn't have the nerve to ask it in the first place if he were actually, you know, physically here. But if I did, and he were, I think he would say that, you know, I hear your concern and how it might seem it's absent of compassion. But the thing is, is when you've been to as many churches as I've been to, when you've, when you've heard people singing songs, so often about losing their chains, but then you watch them later at night go back to an addiction. When you've, when you've sat in the pews and you've heard sermons about loving their neighbors, but then you go ask their actual neighbors if they're actually being loved, and you find there's a disconnect between the two. When you've been inside of all of these places and you've heard all these things, you no longer assume that the volume of their affirmations is a reflection of the validity of their actions. They might sing really loud, but even a canary can sing, and it's still inside the cave. And so Jesus would say, I'm assuming, that I have to ask because I can no longer assume. You live a little bit, you come to recognize both within yourself and within others around you that not everybody who is down actually wants to get back up. Not everybody who's been wounded actually wants to walk. Some people don't actually want to forgive what other people did to them because if you did, then who would you actually blame for what you've been doing to yourself? Some people don't want to accept that they are living under a limited, limiting lie. Because if there's a truth, then you have to turn around and see all the places that your story got stuck and settled and small. Somebody asked me recently, they said, um, you know, I'm, I'm nine days shy of a full year of sobriety. Okay, we're not doing rounds of applause for that anymore. I thought it was a pretty courageous effort. That's fine. No, don't do it now. It feels like it's pity. It's not worth it. I don't want it anymore. Nine days shy, somebody came up to me and said, what's the hardest part of, of getting sober? And I said, the hardest part of sobriety, immediately I knew, is that sobriety makes you sober. It, and that sounds dumb, but it's true. Because it makes you see all the things you didn't have to see before. 
Sobriety is not just don't pick up the bottle. Sobriety is also, why did you pick it up in the first place? Sobriety at its core is, is, is not just this desire not to drink. It's also this, this proclamation, declaration, decision that I want more from my life than I have right now. And if I want more from my life, I have to see where I settled for less. That is hard. That's hard work. It's hard turning around. It's hard saying out loud that I'm not doing everything that way that I want to do it. That's what Lent is for. That's what, I know that like the word repentance has some brutal baggage and, and it's been mishandled by the church for thousands of years, but it is a beautiful word because at its core, metanoia, it just means you need to change your mind. You've been thinking about things this way. There's a better way to think about things. Here is your opportunity to do so. Do you want to get well? Do you actually want to get back up? Do you want to find your feet? Do you want to walk in the truth? Or do you want to just lie back down in a lie? You know, that is what is happening here. If you were to pull out your Bible, assuming it's not the King James Version, and you tried to read the text that I just read from you, it wouldn't be in there the way that I read it. Because John 1 through, through 6, if you open your NIV, ESV, you name it, it'll go John 1, 2, 3, 5, 6. John 4 won't be in there. At some point, the belief is that a scribe put it in there that the only way you can make sense of why all these people are hanging around this pool is because they became to believe a story about an angel would touch the water. And when it did, the people had to hop in and the first person in would get healed. Eventually, the church said, we will not be complicit in that lie. But this is what we do. We will make up a story and we will cling to it so tightly that we'll even have the audacity to make it sound like scripture if it justifies us settling for where we've settled when we could stand up and walk. And so I guess maybe that's just the question this, this season is, do you want to be well? Do you want more for your life than you presently have? Do you want to pursue all that God has put in you? We already talked about it at the gates how the story of your life, the defining truth of your life is that you are not a mistake, you are not an accident, you didn't sneak into this world, you were spoken into it. You are named child of God, beloved, with whom God is well pleased, not because. As is, right now. Do you want that story to set the direction of your life? Because the story you tell about the set setting you're in, that's going to be the thing that determines the plot that will be produced. What's the story in your life that's true? Where are the stories in your life that are lies? I want to show you this uh, clip from, you guys see Adam Project yet? Netflix? Molly, just me and you. Okay, Molly, I cried three, four times. I don't know if it was a good movie, but it made me cry. So I always assume, like, this deserves all the awards because I cried. But it's a time travel movie. I'll spare you all the details, but there's this moment where older Adam, adult Adam, is meeting with younger Adam himself when he's like 12, 13 years old. Both of them have lost their dad and they're dealing with that pain, this thing that they are carrying into this season with them. One of them has chosen to be angry about it. The other one has sadness. When we talk about the Lenten invitation of lingering on your life, it is challenging the assumptions that you carry. 
It is looking within yourself. I want you to see this conversation, give you a glimpse of what I mean. What? I know you think you know more than me because you're older. Go away, Adam. And I know why you hate him so much. Really? Well, do tell. I'm on the edge of my seat here. Holy sh**. I wonder what it was. It because he's uh, narcissistic or um, uh, never came home from work or cared more about his job than he did his it's job? Because he died. You hate him because he died. You made yourself hate him. Because it was easier than missing him. And I remember some stuff that you maybe don't want to. Oh, yeah? Like what? Play catch with us. Almost every night. Catch? You get home from work. Be so tired. And I've been the yards on the ball against the pitchback. You remember the pitchback, right? Oh, I, I remember the pitchback. Yeah, he bought it. So he didn't have to play with me. Nope. He bought it because they had one in the window of Altman's. And every time we passed that store, I begged him to buy it for me. So that's what Dad did. But he'd see me thrown in the yard, and no matter how tired he was, he'd always grab his mitt to come out for a catch. Things happen to you to us, and we suck at dealing with it. I'm starting to think that's something we do. I give mom a hard time now, and I think, I think it's easier to be angry than it is to be sad. And I guess when I get older, I forget that there's a difference. Get to be so smart. How'd you get to be so dumb? All these assumptions that we carry that are so rarely assessed. You know, faith in God isn't just belief that there is one. Believing in Jesus is believing Jesus when Jesus says that if you want to find your life, your abundant life, your whole life, your integrated life, your sound life, your consistent life, you got to lose your life. You gotta let down the falsehoods if you're actually gonna pick up the truth. And so that's what we're here to do. This morning I wrote down a list of questions uh, for myself. If I'm actually gonna do the real work of lingering on my life, what are the questions that would, that would aid me in my ability to do so? I, this is a starter kit for you if you wanna take a picture of the screens around you. These are just questions that I dare you to sit down with later at some point and just seriously consider. Make space for in your life. What are you avoiding? What are you pretending not to know? What are you afraid of? What is your grief? What makes you cry? What makes you wince? What makes you angry? What makes you soften? What evokes your generosity? What provokes your envy? Where is your joy? Jesus, you come into our lives all the time, God, and you are finding us by the pool, asking us the question, do you want to be well? Do you want more than you have right now? Do you want to go further than you've been thus far? Do you want to be well? And you got to do the hard work of getting up.
God, give us the courage to do that hard work. God, give us the conviction to believe that you're with us in the hard questions. That all these things that, are carrying, that we are carrying within us, God, that you're in those too. We love you. We are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Matt. I think that's what I've loved so much about this devotional we've been doing is this idea that, yep, Easter's ahead. But this season of Lent calls us to sit in this, to be honest. It's the space to name it. That it really is the only way, I think, to the full life is actually to sit in some of those hard spaces. Not sit in them so you get stuck, but just the opposite. It's when you're in it, when you're honest, when you're aiming it, that we're able to move forward. I love those practices. And when we gather on Sunday nights, and we come together in communion, I think that's one of the beautiful things about communion. It's also a practice where we can, we can be. We can come forward knowing we are the beloved of God, and at the same time, we can come forward honestly wherever we're at, whether that's in a, a painful place, a scary place, an uncertain place, a joy-filled place, but we can come forward and we can remember that we're loved and we're never alone. I was thinking when Matt was talking about the season we're in and how tired we all are, I was reminded of Jesus' words that come to me, those who are weary and I will give you rest. And that's what we do. That's what we do when we share in the Lord's table. On the night before Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. He took the cup and after pouring wine into the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. So if you want to take your um, cup, you peel that back, there's a wafer. Please hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. And as you take that cup, hear these words. The blood of Christ shed for you. And we take that bread dip it into that juice and we are reminded that yes, we are the beloved of God, that yes, we are called to a life of truth and honesty and transparency and yes, that we're called to do it together. So would you stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Let's worship together.
my son was asking me the other day, like, basically what we talked about all night, like, what's the most important thing that, that we need to learn at church, in life? And I shouldn't have, he's only eight years old, so he wasn't ready for WH Auden, but I went there. I said, there is this quote from Auden that I've cited at least every other sermon that I've ever given. And he says this, we are put here on earth for a little while to learn how to bear the beams of love. It's not just here that we are the beloved, but to learn how to embody it as truth. We have cookies out there. We have Stephanie that wants to meet you. We have Hamiltons that want to kiss you. We think, I don't know. We'll play that one by ear. But before we go, let me remind you once again of who you are. Will you close your eyes, hold out your hands, and receive these words from the heart of God. Friends, no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you are a beloved child of God. And beloved, you belong. Go in peace. See you next Sunday.